0: The opportunity that God has given to each of us again to assemble tonight is truly a grand one. What better way could there have been for you and I to invest our Sunday afternoon and evening than to do so in the presence of magnifying and exalting His name, to pray as we have done, to in fact have the opportunity to again surround the table, to do those things that make for a worship in spirit and in truth in the language of John 4 verse 24. The loveliness that has brought us to this occasion also is a continuation, too, of another study of the Word of God. We have begun a brief series of lessons on the translations of the Bible. And last Lord's evening, or last Lord's day evening, as we began that series, we looked at some of the features and aspects of what is involved in producing a translation of the Word of God. And we'll continue that particular study tonight with installment number two in in our series of lessons. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Our Savior used that statement to, in fact, in the resistance of the temptations that the devil had put before him in Matthew 4, verse number 4. It was on that occasion that the devil had encouraged him to turn stones into bread, and the Lord, in fact, refused to do such, and he used this passage you and I have just noted as his line of defense on that occasion doesn't it still remind us of the magnitude of the Word of God as it's described in ways like that, that we don't live by bread alone, but in fact by every word proceeding from, in fact, the mouth of God. That reminds us of one of the statements that Job, that great patriarch of us, asserted so long ago in Job 23, verse number 12, when he said, "...I have esteemed His Word more than my necessary food." That's a rather sobering reflection, isn't it, to think about our estimation of the Word of God. And may we say that those who have attempted to make translations, if only all of them had lifted as highly their respect for God's Word as these passages we've noted in Job twenty-three, twelve, as well as Matthew 4, 4. To in fact begin our lesson tonight, in fact carrying forward with that thought that we had just asserted, Here's just a few thoughts that we learned last Lord's Day evening, and they will also prompt us into further study tonight. We learned, first of all, how valuable a translation is. Since you and I, at least in the main, are not able to read Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, it is in fact important for us to have a text of the Bible that we can read. And in fact, so many around the world have been and continue to be in that same position. For we aren't scholars in these action and foreign languages. And those who have made translations thus do serve a vital and important role. But there is a very critical element that they should ever make certain to follow. This element of a word-for-word importance and word-for-word philosophy of translation. We are not interested in them interpreting it for us. We simply want them who are knowledgeable of those languages, to turn that language into English or German or Spanish or some other language. And yet so often they have attempted to translate and to do so by a philosophy in which they supposedly give their thrust and their meaning as to what they think the text is saying. That is always dangerous because, again, they can be fallible. They may in fact have denominational dogmas and doctrines at their back and they may thus insert what they think it says when in fact that's not what it teaches at all. And so it's important for them to simply translate the language and not the interpretation for you and I who rightly divide it can interpret it. Among the other things we learned last Lord's Day evening was the sad statement of how so often those who now are able to find a Bible of their choice. You can find a Bible that teaches almost anything that you want it to teach. It says Bible on the front, but it's been encumbered and riddled with mistakes and errors because men who have translated it have not done a dutiful job, and a responsible one at that, of taking that original God-breathed text and presenting it unencumbered with their own personal philosophies and feelings, but simply to present the Word of God. As we continue our series of studies, we will make mention of a number of particular translations and even list examples in which things like that can be easily noted. As we come to tonight, I thought it would be wise to at least devote a few moments, and in fact the entirety of this lesson, at showing some of the matters as it relates to those original Bible documents. "...when God originally gave the Holy Text, and in fact bequeathed it by the matter of inspiration unto men, who in fact delivered it and wrote it down." So those are some very interesting things to consider. And so tonight, let's reflect a little bit on how you and I got this Bible that we now hold, even apart from the matter of it being translated into English. We'll begin that particular set of ideas with thoughts like this. As you and I have noted... The Scriptures were originally, of course, given by God a long time ago from our perspective. I've tried to highlight some of the things there at the top about the original languages again. All the while, as we take note of them, it is so important to notice that at some point in the distant past, God inspired somebody, some man, to write down this which His Holy Spirit had ultimately provided. He wasn't writing his own opinions, his own philosophies, his viewpoints on culture. He wasn't writing what he perceived to be the order of the day. The Holy Spirit provided and gave completely, thoroughly, and entirely that which this gentleman was given to write. Among the things on that slide, in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, a passage that perhaps we could ever keep in mind as it relates to this subject, "'Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. "'For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, "'but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost.'" It was the Holy Ghost that moved them, guided them into writing what they wrote and the way that they wrote it. They were not using God's thoughts in their words. They were writing God's thoughts in God's words." And as such, it was literally, exactly, and entirely the Word of God. And so often throughout the centuries, that simple thought has been one that has been missed by so many. There are still those today who take the liberty of translating and at the same time interpreting, and they think they're doing justice to the human family by asserting what they think the original text said despite the fact, again, that that is not what it said. Even beyond that, can we not recall some of those statements in Scripture that help us affirm these ideas? In John 16, verse 13, the Son of God Himself said, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but that which He seeth, that shall He speak." Jesus thus told those apostles on that occasion, the ones who would be the very individuals upon whom the Spirit would guide and lead, that they would be guided into all truth, not just a part of it or a bit of it or even a majority of it. He said, all truth. And isn't that still a great comfort to us who realize that we have been bequeathed the thoroughness and entirety of all of God's revelation? No parts have been left out. No appendices will ever be needed. In 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, as Peter, in fact, joined in the thought and refrain of that idea, he said, "...according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature." having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter said those blessings came because God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The comfort that comes to us as believers in the Word of God, confident and assured in that which it proclaims, only lead us to notice that the Bible informs us as to who some of these individuals were who were so inspired that they wrote the words of God. We should begin with Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament were due to his hand. It is in fact a monumental tragedy that there have been supposed critical scholars who long since have asserted Moses never wrote anything. Those people are just completely wrong. They may be of the persuasion that humans didn't learn how to write by the time of Moses, but no matter what, perspective they think involves in that. They are simply mistaken. The Old Testament affirms on many occasions that Moses was told by God and that He wrote something. And so often it was the covenant and the words of God. Consider, for example, in Exodus 17:14, it explicitly affirms on that occasion of Israel's battle with Amalek that Moses wrote the critical matters as it related to a reflective history of that battle. Moses wrote it. Even beyond that, in Exodus 24, 4, it expressly says, Moses wrote the words of this covenant. Moses knew how to write. And God gave him the messages on these occasions that he was to write. And it was sacred scripture that he was pinning. Even beyond that, we notice in Exodus 34, 27 and 8, Again, it, it helps us appreciate he wrote the words of this covenant. As if those weren't enough, we could turn to Numbers 33 two And notice where again Moses wrote the record of these journeys. Place by place, it would appear that Moses kept a kind of diary in which he recorded the places the children of Israel stopped and the events that took place. Moses wrote those things. In Deuteronomy 31.9 as well as verse 24, Moses wrote the law, that which you and I call the law of Moses. He wrote it. He even penned a song in Deuteronomy 32 beginning in verse 1. That rather lengthy song the text says in verse 22, Moses wrote it. Isn't it easy to see then that Moses was an inspired writer? And what's more... We even have the record that the first five books of the Old Testament were due to him. I've listed just a few of the places in which it records for us Moses wrote these. We may start in Joshua eight thirty one and end in John seven nineteen, But all of those tell us that it was his law and that he wrote it. Now, he didn't come up with it, of course. But God gave him that law, that covenant which he penned. Moses wasn't the only inspired writer, however, for so many others could be listed and named as they come along the stream of biblical history. There near the top, simply a record from Joshua 24 that Joshua wrote something. He too wrote that which you and I recognize as the book of Joshua. Not to list all of those that could be listed in the Bible. But you'll notice that Samuel wrote something, 1 Samuel 10.25. It too was provided by the God of heaven for him to write. We can also notice in Jeremiah 36 too that it was told to Jeremiah, write these words in a book. It is an interesting thing on that occasion <clears throat> that the king to whom Jeremiah presented that didn't respect it very highly. And oddly enough, he took his penknife and cut it up and threw it into the fire. God commissioned Jeremiah, you write the same things that you had written before and add some things to it as punishment of the decree that I will bring upon this king who has rejected my word. Jeremiah did write what God told him and in the chapters that followed, the end came to that king just as God had said that it would. It is rather amazing to notice that we have a reflection in Nehemiah 8 verses 1 to 8 about the respect and adoration that the people of the Old Testament era had, at least in most instances at least, for the Word of God. The text says they all stood up and they listened to it read from morning until midday. Amazing, isn't it? And yet so many today would just as quickly trample the Word of God underfoot. And yet here they were, so excited and eager that they stood up and listened to Ezra and the others expound upon it and teach it and discuss it from morning even until midday. You'll also notice beyond that text in Nehemiah, we notice in Daniel 9 verse number 2, that, that interesting and noble prophet of old, was so interested and incessant in his study of the Word that he was aware of the fact that Jeremiah had prophesied the length of duration of the captivity, and he knew that it was so because Jeremiah had penned it. He had confidence in God's Word. Today, isn't it sad when there are some who perhaps will read it but seem not to believe it? They seem to be uninterested in it, or they're willing to argue or question it. That really doesn't mean what it appears to say. But then there are those like you and me who believe it exactly for what it says. We trust that it is the Holy Word of God and we not only believe it in the here and now, but we trust that it is a reliable guide to what will be the case hereafter. Amazing, isn't it, that God has blessed us with this. Without it, how lost would we be? No guidance for this life. No idea how to make it to heaven. We wouldn't even be assured there would be a place like heaven. And yet in it we have the complete authoritative and infallible guide of all matters and truth because God has bequeathed and granted it to us. Isn't it amazing still to listen to that commendation of First Thessalonians 2.13? When Paul, speaking of the Thessalonian brethren, said of them, When you received the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God that effectually worketh in you that believe. They took what Paul preached as the word of God, and Paul commended them for that. May we at Pippin always continue to treat it as the word of God. Amongst those things that you and I have just noted... Books written by Samuel, by Joshua, by Moses, by Jeremiah. We now appreciate in that Old Testament there are 39 of these inspired books. These books given by the very hand and breath of God. They fall into these divisions. There are five books of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. There are 12 books of history, commencing with Joshua and ending at Esther. There are five books of poetry that begin, of course... That book of Job and go all the way to the Song of Solomon. And finally, 17 books of prophecy beginning with Isaiah and ending at Malachi. Those are the fullness and completeness of all inspired Old Testament books. It is to be noted that the human family on a few occasions has asserted there are additional books to these 39 there are more, and they, they are quick to tell us. And in fact, one can purchase Bibles that have more books in the Old Testament than these 39. Be very cautious, though. Those books are called apocryphal, those additional books of the Old Testament, that is, and they are not inspired. They have mistakes in them. They contradict the Old Testament as you and I know it. They state things that are not true. We mustn't accept those books despite the fact that some men encourage us to do so. Again, those apocryphal books were from the hand of a man who himself was not inspired. Many times those books have names that sound like the books of the Old Testament, like the book Ecclesiasticus. That sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? But it is a completely different book and not authored by Solomon. Solomon. In fact, that gentleman that we mentioned in passing earlier, we mentioned Jeremiah, he had a person who worked along with him as his person who wrote. As Jeremiah, in fact, dictated it, this person named Baruch would write it down. There are some who have a book in their Old Testament called The Writings of Baruch. Baruch was not inspired in that regard, and that book is not an inspired Old Testament book, these writings of Baruch. Perhaps we've said enough to remind us of how special these books are. So special because they were the guide of those Old Testament Israelites, and they, of course, still remain for you and me today as that schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Galatians 3.24 Perhaps it'd be wise to also comment there at the bottom. And if you'd like to write some of those down or take note of them, that's just a sampling of some of the passages in the Old Testament in which these books are referred to as Scripture, meaning that they occupied a different place of respect and a different tenor as it related to the fact of where they came from. Genesis 31, 47, Jeremiah 10:11, 11, and again all those others reminding us about how special these Old Testament books really are. You'll notice one of the things there at the bottom, though, reminds us that most of the Old Testament came originally in Hebrew. There are a few sections that were Aramaic. That particular thought alone is worthy of an additional remark or two. Hebrew and Aramaic are similar languages. In fact, they both come from the same original language stock, but they are distinct. And those who are capable of reading the distinction easily can tell where the Old Testament slips into Aramaic and when it goes back into Hebrew. I thought that some of these remarks would in fact be useful for us to keep in mind. Aramaic, you see, was the common, typical, ordinary, everyday language of the first century Palestine area. This is the language Jesus typically would have spoken, Aramaic. And as he often spoke that, it's an interesting thing to notice that from time to time, our New Testament reminds us of the place and the role that Aramaic played. I've listed just a few, many of them from the book of Mark. As Mark wrote that gospel account, recording what Jesus said and the way in which he said it, he often would explain a particular Aramaic phrase by immediately translating what it meant. For instance, on that occasion when he said, Eli, Eli, lama I. You and I would have a difficult time understanding what that means if Mark hadn't immediately told us that means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, in the very text of the Word of God itself, that original Aramaic phrase is immediately translated for us. Other examples... In Mark 7:34, for example, when the Lord said, Talitha, cue me, in which to that damsel who had passed away, Tabitha, rise. We have an explanation then from the Aramaic what that phrase meant and what the Lord was actually saying. As if all of that wasn't sufficient and enough. Isn't it amazing how that some other words such as, That text of 1 Corinthians 16.22 is also actually an Aramaic word. That word again, that Maranatha, you and I as we read a passage like that one, you and I perhaps can appreciate that that word really means, Lord, come. Perhaps another example, that rather very tender phrase in Galatians 4.6, where Paul, the inspired writer, said that one can refer to God as Abba, A-B-B-A, and yet that was an Aramaic way that a son or a daughter could refer to their father. It means something as kind and as powerful as the word daddy. Now, not as if you and I could condescend to bring God to that level, but in that tender way to call upon Him as our Father and appreciate that He hears the cries and the requests of His faithful children. All of that points us to the beautiful statement that God then preserved these writings for us. In addition to originally having them written, He has seen fit to preserve them throughout the centuries because obviously by now you can appreciate how long ago that was. These books that Moses wrote, they were now written, you can well imagine, 3,500 years ago. And these books, even of the New Testament, were written almost 2,000 years ago. And yet God has seen fit throughout the centuries to preserve these writings, and you and I are still blessed to have them. No wonder we should then also see God's blessing and provision in the original production of them but also in part in their preservation throughout the years. As we're going to see in just a moment, there are some interesting evidences that make the Bible truly stand unique as we appreciate just how special a matter its preservation has been. There at the bottom of that slide, many comments could be made about the New Testament and the way that it was originally provided in Koine Greek. As that Greek text is set before us again, most of us are not able to read Greek, but we are blessed with those who have the capability to translate. Just a few of the things to notice. The gospel accounts were not the first New Testament books that were written, though they do come first in our New Testament, and perhaps rightfully so. There are many who think the book of 1 Thessalonians may well have been the first New Testament book penned almost certainly quickly thereafter would have been the book of Mark. It was the first of the gospel accounts to be penned. We can begin to note some of the reasonings as to why those gospel accounts in particular were written. In Luke 1 verses 1 to 4, as Luke set out on the passage and greatness of that work of providing that gospel account, he said he had taken the greatest pains to set forth in order, most noble Theophilus, the nature and writings of what are most surely believed. That is to say, Luke was recording those matters concerning the Christ that were most surely believed. John's gospel account near its close also gives us a preamble or anthem as to the reasoning as to why John wrote it. In John 20 verses 30 and 31, he said, "...truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of His disciples." But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in His name. We have the reason then why God inspired John to write that. These things are written that you might believe. When you and I read the sacred text then, we should see the handprint of God all over it. And we should appreciate that it is a truthful representation of that life of Christ, the early work of the church, if you please, and the greatness and nature of the promises He has set forth for all of us. These things are written that you might believe. Those things concerning the gospel accounts and concerning some of the other statements that we have made, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul, of course, wrote many of the books of the New Testament. Those original documents quite frequently are called epistles. And I've listed those passages that I could find in which those writings were particularly labeled in that way, highlighting again that they were different than just ordinary writings. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 27, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 and 15, as well as the others, we have especially the reference, these are the writings. The word in Greek is graphe, graphe the particular writings of God. We again have been blessed with 27 of these New Testament books, beginning with Malachi, rather with Matthew and ending with the Revelation. And as we could perhaps note, the human family has also added other books to that list. There are some Bibles with more than 27 New Testament books. Those are the so-called apocryphal New Testament books. They have some interesting names at times, such as the Gospel of Barnabas, such as the Gospel of Judas Iscariot, as well as a whole host of others. May we again take note, those apocryphal New Testament writings, again, are not inspired of God. They have mistakes in them. They are not true representations of God-breathed Scripture. Thus, they should be rejected not looked upon as the truth of God and not worthy of being looked upon as guidance to heaven, but rather as that which truly is just the writing of men. You'll also notice in 2 Peter 3 verse 16 that the writings of Paul are referred to as Scripture. Scripture. We thus see pretty early on that various writings were elevated to a status and stature that they were different than just common, ordinary writings of men. It was God that produced these writings, and the human family, in its wisdom, appreciated that fact. And today, you and I still are blessed with the writings. At this point, might we also ask some additional questions? about these original documents and what they mean to us and how they have come to us. I ask you to give some thought then to the reliability that accords to those original documents. After all, isn't that a pretty good question? Isn't it something that at least is worthy of consideration on our part? For after all, think about what we said a minute ago. Today, for instance, in science... You and I could go to at least certain libraries and perhaps find the writings of some scientist from maybe three to four hundred years ago. Rare indeed would be any document we would ever find any older than that. But didn't you and I just note earlier, even at its latest, this book was written almost two thousand years ago. And those writings of Moses three and a half millennia ago. How certain can you and I be that those manuscripts and those unshields and those missives that the translators are using, how sure are we that those are the original documents and that they're trustworthily preserved and still available? That's a good question, isn't it? I thought that we'd devote the remainder of the lesson, the last few moments, to giving some thought to affirming in our mind the tremendous credibility and the remarkable reliability that goes with those original documents. Consider some of these statements. Those ancient writings, as God in fact inspired those men to write them, we understand that those were originally given long before there was any mechanical ability to copy them. The only capability to copy was by the hand of a scribe who meticulously sat at a desk or at a table for months on end to produce one copy of the sacred scriptures. What if that man made a mistake? What if he transcribed an error, changed a word here or there? Would that not be a consideration of concern? I suppose we're asking, how certain are you and I able to be that those manuscripts that are available to us today are, in fact, the original documents. Some of these statements, I think, should challenge us in a beautiful way to have a great deal of confidence. I've tried to summarize some features, and let me just list them, and then we'll look at them from a different perspective in just a moment. First of all, as we give thought to the reliability of the New Testament documents, Let me ask you to note that number I've written over to the right-hand side about midway down that slide. If we were to ask the question, how many of these documents, either in total or in part, do we have access to today? The number is a rather staggering figure. 5,686 partial or complete copies, manuscripts of the original text of the Bible. That's a staggeringly large number, isn't it? Can we not see in that that God has seen fit to preserve His Word so that it would be available to future generations and so that it could be looked upon as that special book that it is? Almost 5,700 partial copies of those original Greek Hebrew manuscripts. Beyond that, what should we say about the time frame that goes with them? Now, I've prepared a table, a little chart, that summarizes some of these. Let's look perhaps at that next, then go back to this page in just a moment. To give you some impression of just how special the sacred text is, I would ask us to give some thought to a number of other writings of the ancient era. In school, our children are required to read certain authors and certain books some of them from a day and period long since past. You may recognize some of these names out to the left. Perhaps Plato comes to mind. Our youngsters are asked to read and to appreciate the truthfulness of what they read as it relates to what Plato wrote. But might I ask you to notice something interesting about Plato. Did you notice the earliest copy that we have of anything that Plato wrote is 900 A.D. When you notice the fact that he lived from 427 to 327 B.C., you can easily see that well over 1,300 years passed from the time he wrote whatever he wrote until the most recent copy that we have. Over a 1,000 years passed. How sure are we that the thing they're reading is Plato? If a 1,000 years pass... How do we know someone didn't change it? Some copyist didn't change what Plato wrote into something that they preferred. In essence, we're saying the longer is the period of time between the original document until the copy that we have, the less sure that we can be of the reliability of our copy. It gave more time for it to be altered and modified and changed. Look at some other examples. Our students at least from time to time, are asked to read Herodotus. And yet you'll notice, second to the bottom, 1,300 years passed from the time he lived until the the most recent copy of anything Herodotus wrote that we have. 1,300 years. Perhaps to say all of that is to say, where does the Bible documents fit into this? You'll notice I haven't referred to them. How much time passed between the original writings and the most recent copies that we have? Look at some of these statements. I have some more authors that you might consider as well. Everyone from Thucydides all the way down to Tacitus. And all you need to do is look at that third to the last column and notice how many years passed from the time they wrote until the oldest copy that we have. With saying all of that, why not ask about the Bible? What about those documents that are trustworthy as they relate to the Word of God? You'll notice that even Aristotle, still a gigantic 1,400 years between what he wrote and the oldest copy that we have. But I've saved the best for last. What about the New Testament? What about those documents that would be the basis of the 27 books of the New Testament that you and I trust in, that we read and believe, that we take to heart and trust as a guide through this life? There, less than 100 years, we have copies of the sacred texts that go back to the very lifespan of the apostles themselves. Can we not thus have orders of magnitude more confidence in the Bible than any of these other writings. And yet people trust in these other writings. They believe in them. They ought to have a million times more fold confidence in the Bible than they have in any of these other books. Those today who write and call into question the books of the Bible, they ought never have any of these other things read. For we are less certain of them, less sure of who wrote them and that they're trustworthy. Certainly as it compares to the Word of God. One of the things that that number allows us to note, that number I mentioned earlier, 5,686 manuscript versions and copies, one of the things that that allows us to do is to cross-reference the various copies. Does this one match that one? When they come to the same verse, do they read just alike? When they refer to certain places and events, do they all refer to it the same way? you'll notice at the rightmost column, those who are able to set the Greek text side by side on those copies are almost 100% sure that that which is there is the original text of the Word of God. That's amazing. That's an absolute statement of the preservation and providence of God that makes sure that what you and I read and what you and I have (coughs) is the Word of God. We need not fear that somebody has garbled it, changed it, altered it, modified it, ruined it. We can rest assured whatever pollutions entered in, God ensured His copyists would not keep those matters in production. If they can be almost 100% sure by cross-referencing the various ones, friend, what a blessing. We have the Word of God that was originally given. That allows us to read this and have the greatest assurance, far more than we would if it were Aristotle or Plato or Socrates or Thucydides or any of these others. We're reading what God gave to be written, aren't we? To think about it from that perspective gives us the greatest of assurances, doesn't it? I've listed at the bottom where I got that information. It is from an organization known as the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. If you wish, you can look on their website and find even additional thoughts about the credibility and the reliability of these documents we have as the Word of God. Certainly as we come near the close of this lesson, our thoughts about the translations have led us to make this conclusion. The translators do have access to the Word of God. There's no question about that. If they mess up the translation, it's not because they didn't have a trustworthy and reliable set of manuscripts from which to make their translation. If they make those mistakes, it's their fault. They are the ones, in fact, that are following bad translation guidelines. And so beginning next Lord's Day evening, we, with these thoughts in mind, will turn our attention to various specific translations. What can we say about them? As we sit side by side some of their translations versus what God said, we will time and again find that some things are not so good, that certain translations are not reliable, and that certain presentations of God's Word in these so-called Bibles are misleading at best and just completely wrong at worst. Tonight as we close this lesson, giving our reflection to how special the Word of God is, It is in fact the Word of God. Just as God told Ezekiel back in Ezekiel 2 verses 3 and 4, Son of man, speak with my word unto them. Ezekiel was not to speak with opinion or speculation, but with God's Word. Today you and I can speak with that same authority. We have His Word. We can commit it to memory. We can study and read it. And we can of course strive to rightly divide it and to always put it in its proper teaching. The plan of salvation is one of the things set forth in such crystal clear statements and ways. We are told that we must hear the word of the Lord, that we must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, that we must repent of our sins, that we must confess His name as a Son of God, and that we must be baptized. If tonight there's one or more in this audience for whom that is the need of your life, why not obey tonight? If you have become a member of that body of Christ, but... At this point, you have become unfaithful. You maybe forgot what a special treasure the Word of God is. Come back to that first love. If we could pray in a public way for forgiveness of sins that you've committed in a public way, we'd be happy to do that. If we could be of assistance to anyone tonight, would you not let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?